Hello, my name is Charles Bowman and today, well, I'm delighted to host an exclusive interview on Off The Agenda with a British actor who has crossed over into the US, cementing himself in Hollywood and appearing in films such as The Dark Knight and Fast and Furious, as well as TV roles in Supergirl, Night Flies and the new season of the Netflix Star Trek Discovery. He sits amongst the likes of Idris Elba, John Boyega and Letitia Wright and a number of other black British actors who have recently been catapulted into the limelight and whose early acting careers were honed in London and the UK. These individuals are testament to the talent and potential that thrives in our great cities as they continue to represent the best of Britain through the arts. Today, we will hear from the man himself, David Ajala. Sure. Thank you for the introduction, Charles. Much appreciated. Um, I fly to Toronto this weekend, currently working on Star Trek Discovery Season 4. Um, we started shooting the new season in October, had a break for Christmas, and then, of course, I fly back out to continue it. It's a wonderful, wonderful project to be working on. And I think there's something really timely about Star Trek, especially because of recent events as of last year and then into this year. Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek as a whole has always had a really unique way of um, being effective with social commentary. And um, I, I always like to work on projects which has something to say. I think it's very, very important. Of course it could be entertaining, but it has to have something to say. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Christmas, Christmas was cool, different. Very different. Um, but look, we're all turning lemons into lemonade as best we can, you know? And I know it was a different kind of Christmas, but I think it kind of me personally gave me the perspective to just really be grateful and to count my blessings, however small and big, you know? I'm sure it was the same for yourself as well. I, I think we're all going to remember where we were on Christmas Day 2020. 20, yeah. It will have been different, unique for us all, uh, but it was something, be something I'm sure that none of us are going to forget. Mm. Well, look, thank you for, for that, David. And I you know, do want to, to start perhaps by uh, asking, what was it that made you just decide to become an actor? Uh, and what perhaps was the defining moment that shaped that chosen career path? Um, so, I think it all started off with my parents' love for, <laughs> in no particular order, James Bond, Eddie Murphy, and Carry On movies. It just felt like, you know, parents come from Nigeria. They came to the UK in the 70s. Um, and I think they wanted to kind of immerse their children in British culture, but the British culture that they too really enjoyed so it was in the form of entertainment. It was James Bond, it was Carry On. And then it was Eddie Murphy, of course, American culture. And um, I think it was just something about being exposed to really cool movies and seeing a character like James Bond and then humor with like Carry On. And I know like what's funny about Carry On now is when I watch it now, there's a lot of um, innuendos that at the time went way over my head, but a lot more funnier now. And I think there was just something about, um, characters on screen that just really captured my attention. So cut to being in secondary school, I was always um, seen as the guy in class who was very talkative, 
mischievous, but entertaining. And I think I happily wore the, um, the class clown hat because I enjoyed entertaining people. So my maths teacher, he suggested that I should join or do uh, GCSE in drama because you have to choose between music, drama and art. So he said, David, I recommend you should try and do some acting because then you can use that excessive energy that you have. So I did it. Uh, and then from then I kind of just kept acting, after school clubs, improvisation clubs. It was any way to just immerse myself in it because it just felt right. It felt fulfilling and it was fun. And then maybe a year after doing acting, it actually felt like something that I was okay at, just okay. Because I was surrounded by a lot of people who were super talented and they were my main source of inspiration. And then it got to a stage where I really had to prove to myself and to my parents that this was my chosen career path. And I think from the age of 16, that's after leaving secondary school, I had the tunnel vision to just really pursue it. There was no guarantee that it would work out, but I just felt like I enjoyed it. That's great to hear. Was there, was there a sort of defining moment? Um, you've gone on to be a hugely successful uh, actor, uh, but was there a defining moment uh, that moved you forward, that accelerated that career path? Um, that's a good question. And, you know, I suppose for myself that, that there isn't, I think there's a lot of incremental defining moments that collectively make the defining moment. And I think one was definitely doing long stints on the theatre scene or in the theatre scene with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre. That just really solidified my foundation as an actor to understand the craft and um, the, um, the, the discipline and um, stamina required for storytelling. You know, I think in its truest essence, an actor's craft is really realised on stage. TV and film are different avenues. And of course, you know, you still require a certain level of skill, but I feel that you're really able to embody the craftsmanship of an actor on stage. So my defining moments came from doing theater. But I think what kind of pushed the needle forward a little more was doing more American TV and getting into that world of um, doing stuff. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of incremental moments that kind of led towards more opportunities. Well, perhaps we'll come on to the US a little further, but you know, as you will observe, the gosh, the industry has changed much um, in uh, even in, in your lifetime, uh, mm. my lifetime, and, and the last sort of 10 years or so. And specifically, we might observe that you know, Netflix and streaming services have really shaken up the industry and a lot of the preconceptions about audiences and what they would want to watch you know, based on using perhaps data as the evidence rather than the received wisdom of the, of the industry. Mm. How, how do you think that this has opened up the, the range of stories and perspectives we're seeing? And is it now proving that there is an appetite for more diverse stories and storylines as you put it? And is it in turn giving new opportunities to actors such as yourself? Absolutely. I think um, it's a really exciting time. And I think this change has been happening um, for a few years, but I think during the past like uh, two, three years, I think it's really accelerated. And I just feel that in the world now, 
people crave authenticity. And I think if you're being authentic as a byproduct, we'll experience diversity. I think diversity comes about because of the need and also the lack of authenticity. If we're talking about reflecting stories within the world of which we live in, we want to see multifaceted stories of people from different walks of life, races, religion, sexual orientation, the list goes on. You want to see people reflected on screen. I think it's important. I think it's healing. And I actually think it's exciting to have a mixture of diversity. Certainly for myself, um, I'm very, very fortunate because when I went to drama school, my um, principal in drama school said two things to me when she took me on board. She said, David, we're gonna work on your stage speech just to equip you with the skills so that whatever text comes your way, you're able to do it trippingly off the tongue. And then she said also being 100% frank, and this is why I love this lady. She said, David, I wanna make sure that when it comes to acting and working in the industry, your roles aren't limited to being on Crime Watch. She said, I want to make sure that you have as many opportunities as possible because that's the way it should be. That's what she said to me. And that instantly changed the game for me. So my mindset has always been diverse and to allow myself to have multiple opportunities. So it kind of prepared me and gave me the right foundation to dabble with the American market where I just found they're definitely a lot more receptive of sharing diverse stories. The UK is definitely getting a lot better and it's really, really, really great and encouraging to see. Well, that's, 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 that's very good to hear. And we, we spoke earlier about Star Trek and of course that has a record of inclusion. The mm. original series had the, the first interracial kiss. Uh, it gave yeah. us our first black captain and, and, a, and a woman as a captain. And, and it moved arguably much more quickly than, say, Doctor Who. And now with mm. Discovery, uh, we have a black female lead. And all this in a genre that is traditionally, or has been traditionally dominated perhaps by the white male. So how do you feel that sci-fi or sci-fi is leading the way in showcasing diversity? And, uh, and what more would you like to see? So that's a good question. Um... I think what's really special about sci-fi is uh, sci-fi is able to do storytelling in different algorithms. And because we're talking about a time zone or time period which we haven't yet been to, it leaves a lot of room for imagination, for discovery and for interpretation. And I think because of that distance and um, detachment from time, we're, we're of course, in 2021, Star Trek is set in uh, uh, thousand years into the future. So it would be like the year 3020 or so. We don't know how things would be. It's all down to our imagination. So when it comes to being able to normalize diversity, there's something very fulfilling about it. And it's not something that's hugely celebrated on the show, though it is but it's something that Star Trek really aims towards normalizing. Because I feel that by normalizing and celebrating our differences, it allows us to collectively be reliant on each other, to know that our strength comes from working together. I think there's a school of thought of some people when they say, I don't see color. I, I, 
I think it's the wrong way of thinking. I think you should see color. There's nothing wrong with seeing color. It's good to see the differences. We should just allow ourselves to be able to embrace the differences and work together. Because I think my working together brings out the best in us. So the fact that Star Trek Discovery at the moment now has a black female lead who is super talented, courageous, um, adventurous, is great because there's going to be a lot of young girls, a lot of black girls, mixed race girls, and girls in general, irrespective of race, that's going to see her. Aesthetically, are going to be able to connect, but then also character-wise, are going to be able to connect. And I think it's really important that we see ourselves reflected on screen. Well, that's great, great to hear. And perhaps if we're, we're looking at the sort of sci-fi, sci-fi juggernauts and how they embrace more diverse casts and stories. Perhaps mm. an obvious comparison uh, for Star Trek Discovery um, is the recent Star Wars trilogy. And the, the later films did attract a little bit of criticism, uh, including treated their non-white cast members mm. in terms of rewarding the character development and the importance to the central story. So, you know, one question I wanted to ask is, do, you, do we need to push for more diverse talent in the writing rooms and behind the cameras to avoid this? And are there more sort of structural changes we should be pushing for in the industry to change? Or will at the end of the day, money and convenience always win out? See, that's the thing. Um, I think when it comes to sometimes within the, the infrastructure of the UK, when it comes to the entertainment that they produce, there is a, a default brand and style of work which is always going to sell. I liken it to uh, Marvel movies. It's always going to have an audience. It's always going to sell. But the danger is by always going to the default, you're just recycling ideas that we've already seen. I think what's going to be really important going forward is the people who are telling the stories. So like you said, Charles, in the writing room, for example, if I'm working on a project that's about inner city London life and growing up in the UK, being, I don't know, I can be as specific as a school in East London, and it's about these uh, secondary school pupils in year 11, all deciding whether they're gonna to go to college or if they're all gonna become entrepreneurs and do their own thing. In my writing room, with my writing staff, I'm gonna have every shade and race of the rainbow and walk of life. Reason why is because I'm assuming that I don't know everything and I need authenticity. So I want that to be reflected in my room. And I'll always go with best idea wins because no matter how informed I may think I am when it comes to inner city London life or whatever, there's people's, there are other people who have completely different experiences because of their perceptive and the way that they have walked their life. That too needs to be included in. I think a lot of the writing rooms need to be shaken up, for sure. And, and do you see that happening? Um, I, it is happening, but um, again, it's about how much authenticity are the powers that be comfortable with. It's, it's trying to find that balance, because for me personally, like I have no, like Carry On, for example, I don't watch Carry On and think, oh man, where, 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 are, the, where are the Indian people? Where are the black people? Where are... It's a very specific story within that world. I'm like, cool, it works. That's authentic in that time. 
watching Downton Abbey, it might be a similar thing. Authenticity is the most important thing, and it just depends on how comfortable the powers that be are with authenticity. But I think the people, and when I say the people, it's audience members and people who consume content, I think they're craving it. I think that's an extremely good point. Um, and your point around authenticity is extremely, extremely well made. David, can I, can I m m move us actually to the science of, of Star Trek? And I do have a question from Professor Sarah Rankin from the Imperial College. And she asks, how much do you know and how interested are you and the team about the overarching science of Star Trek? Uh, and do you use consultants to ensure that things are scientifically correct? And indeed, of the technologies used in the current series, which one would you like to see in real life today? Um, so I'll answer the first part of that question. We have, I say we, the um, creatives behind Star Trek Discovery, they have a team of consultants that they liaise with. And I'm talking about from the biggest detail to the tiniest detail. Uh, Star Trek Discovery and the powers, the powers that be, the creators involved, they really take pride in keeping as consistent and authentic as possible, especially when it comes to the through line of, um, of, of all the things that make Star Trek Star Trek, which is a large part of um, uh, all the things that make Star Trek Star Trek, and a large part of it is the scientific specificities. So whenever we are given dialogue and we have to discuss X, Y, and Z, you best believe the creatives involved have such a profound, deep understanding of it. Just by default, we learn so much more and understand so much more. In terms of technology, I would love to see or have access to a spore drive because to be able to have access to a spore drive and to be able to, oh man, I mean, the, the opportunities are endless, absolutely endless. And I, I don't want to give too much away because especially in this new season, there are some new bits of technology which are very impressive and really, really cool. And I'm really excited to see how fans are going to respond to seeing these new bits of technology because we are a thousand years into the future so a lot of it is imaginative I mean well, we, we've got much to look forward to in 2021 and uh, absolutely uh, all Star Trek fans I'm sure we'll look forward to that with 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 a great sense of excite excitement yeah can, can I, I I am keen to to sort of look to the next generation um, <laughs> and perhaps to to ask how do you see yourself influencing the uh, the next generation of actors looking to follow in an equivalent uh, path to your own. And are there any particular bits of advice that you would offer? And how can the next generation of aspiring actors from black and other minority communities push through the social bar barriers that exist today? Um, I think what's really important is a bit of advice that my agent, gave me, uh, I'm with independent talent, my agent is Mr. Oliver Slinger. And I remember when I signed with him, he came, I was already with a different agent and then he came to see me doing a play at the National Theatre. And then uh, after the show, there was a little party and then he came up to me and he said he really enjoyed what I did. He gave me his card and he said, if you want to discuss anything at all, just give me a shout. So I did, reached out to him 
said I was interested in, you know, continuing the conversation. Cut to a week later, I'm in his office and we were talking and he was just telling me what he does and, you know, the kind of work and scripts that he reads and the kind of work he gets for his clients. And when I said to him, what kind of roles will you send me up for? And he said, David, when I saw you on stage, I saw good acting. So I'm going to send you up for everything. What Oliver Slinger did for me in that moment was reminded me not to limit myself. So for the next generation of actors, artists, musicians, the best thing you can do for yourself is to not limit yourself, is to expose yourself to as much material, to have such a curiosity that doing acting or doing art, doing music comes from a place of necessity and a place of discovery. Because this is the kind of industry where you have to have a passion which goes beyond rationale to a degree, because you're told no so many times. I've heard no more times than I've heard yes. David, we really liked you for this role, but we gave it to this guy because he's a bit taller, or he's a bit prettier, or he's a bit shorter, or he's got a better CV, or he's done more theatre. There are certain things that you can't control, but the things that you can control, you should really invest in them. You can control your attitude towards the work. You can control how invested you are in learning and building your skill set. You can control how you respond to when you're rejected. And I think that's where you should really put your energy in. And if it does work out, and if you do become successful, that's a cherry on top. But don't be so focused on the success that you miss out on the journey, because the journey is everything. That's a very, very sound piece of, uh, of advice. And, and, and looking at it, there's a, there's a long list of hugely talented British actors who've crossed over the pond to take on extremely successful roles in Hollywood and the US. You mentioned that earlier, the mm -hmm. significance of the US on your own development. You've got Idris Elba, Danielle Kaluuya, John mm -hmm. Boyega, Letitia Wright, and of course yourself. And how is growing up in London and the UK and perhaps some of the social challenges and disadvantages shaped you in your ability to take on roles in the US television and film industry? I think what has been advantageous for me, and I think this it's a bit of a sensitive subject because there is this whole perceived idea in the UK, in um, America, that actors from the UK are well-trained because they do theatre and they're exposed to material like Chekhov and Ibsen and Shakespeare and what have you. So for that, and they can do the American accent. So it's like our stock in the market is higher. And this is a privilege that one can lean into or go against. But in actuality, it works in our favor. So it's been very advantageous for a lot of actors from the UK, um, black, white, East Asian, South Asian, the list goes on, who have gone over to America and who've really been able to carve out careers. And I think it's because of that perceived perception. But then also, I think there, there are a lot more opportunities out in the States for actors. So with the names that you've mentioned, these are all actors who have been building a career here in the UK, that when they were given an opportunity to work in America, their foundation was so solid that the timing of that opportunity worked out because they had done theater. They had worked in an industry which had really, really celebrated 
um, your craft, where your craft is celebrated and your talent is celebrated. I don't think we have much of a star system in the UK. Of course we do, but in compared to America, we don't really have much of a star system. So by default for us, it's all about the work. And I know this may sound like a blanket statement, but I think that mindset really helps when transitioning and working in America, because you're just rooted with the work. And I too have benefited from that and specifically from my theatre background. I think when, when we say the word authenticity, I remember someone giving me a bit of advice. It's one of the best bits of advice I've ever received. And they said, um, the best gift you can give yourself is to remind yourself that you're more than enough. And I think no matter walk of life, no matter what walk of life one comes from, someone comes from a walk of life with just by nature of the, pro not even the proximity, just by nature of the circumstances that they're born into, they have a lot more opportunities and privilege. It is what it is. With someone else, just as deserving as the other person, but they're not born into the same kind of fortunate circumstances. But if they can both embrace and understand the idea that come what may, irrespective of my circumstances, working for or against me, I am more than enough. I think that's one of the best bits of advice that I've received. And I think it's given me the freedom personally to really be able to charge at every opportunity that's been presented to me without getting in my own way. And um, not only is it liberating, it's very empowering. I, I, I can totally understand that. That's extremely well put. And of course, these are extraordinarily challenging times that we are, are, are living in uh, today. And we can see that continuing through into 2021 and, and beyond. Perhaps if I may, talking of those challenging times uh, and the impact uh, of the coronavirus and the pandemic, which would have been impacted us all in, in different ways, but particularly arts and culture have been really heavily impacted. In, in, in the UK, do, do, do you feel that we have enough investment in the arts and, um, and what type and what level of investment do you think is needed for the industry to continue to thrive as it has done and to develop and continue to develop post-COVID? It's, I think one of the most important things is for um, the government to understand the importance of theatre and the arts and how necessary it is. Um, during COVID-19 and the pandemic, we've all been encouraged to stay at home and to avoid traveling unnecessarily. And one of our main outlets has been streaming services and entertainment. It's a form of escapism. That's the next best thing to live entertainment and being in that room and seeing that performance, seeing that person singing, seeing that instrument being played live. We are so blessed in the UK and London specifically with the amount of theater that we have. And I really, really, really hope that the powers that be will see the importance of it and inject the right support, finances and infrastructure to make sure that theater doesn't just survive, but thrives. Cause like now we need it to thrive when we return back. And I'm really hopeful really really hopeful for that you make an extremely good point and actually it comes back to you, you used theater as a uh, as one of the defining moments in your own career and we are incredibly fortunate aren't we just mm. in, in what we have and what we possess throughout 
the UK uh, and L London too. Um, David, I had one final question, but I just wondered, if, is there anything else that you wanted to ask of me? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm looking at your badges and the, the ribbon specifically. And um, yeah, especially as, you know, during lockdown, it's been challenging for many, many people, me included. And um, the importance of mental health is so important. And I think during this time, it's really been exasperated. And um, whatever issues people had have been magnified a lot because it's really intense trying times. Um, why do you wear that ribbon and why is that important to you? Well, sort of thank you for asking. And I, I put a tiny bit of context in relation to both these badges. The top, mm -hmm. the top badge is what is, it relates to the Lord Mayor's Appeal. And that's the body that looks after the sort of the charitable activity of the Lord Mayor. And actually following some consultation of city business, we used the opportunity back in 2017-18 to relaunch the Lord Mayor's Appeal with a new and more modern purpose and focus and, and a new logo to reflect that purpose. And actually the badge, as you see, carries that, that logo. A depiction of the, the Mansion House, which is a magnificent Palladian home of the Lord Mayor in the heart of the city of London. And the columns are the four pillars, the pillars of the appeals focus to help create a city that is fair, inclusive, skilled uh, and healthy with an overarching objective of creating a better city for all. Uh, and one of those areas of emphasis I refer to healthy has, has been mental health. Uh, mm -hmm. And the green ribbon itself is again associated with the Lord Mayor's appeal. Uh, the green ribbon campaign has become actually not only a national, but an international movement to help right. end the stigma around mental health in, in the workplace. And each, mm -hmm. every year, to mark Mental Health Awareness Week and World, World Mental Health Day, we ask businesses to wear green ribbons uh, like this to enable organisations to help and support their employees with their own mental health and well-being. And delighted, I'm really delighted to say that last year, green ribbons were worn in 101 towns and cities across the world. And actually in over, 100, over 170,000 green ribbons were worn nationally across the country. That's awesome. That's, that's such important work. That's, that's, that's really encouraging to hear. Uh, well, uh, thank you for saying it. And it is such a critical agenda. And, and as you say, exacerbated uh, in, in, in the times in which we live at this moment. That's the thing. And I, I think it's, it's like the coronavirus, it is an invisible threat. It's an invisible illness. But the more we're able to shine a light on it and to alleviate as much of that stigma as possible, that's healing in itself. You know, it's to normalize having the freedom to say, you know what, I don't actually feel great here today, but I'm working on me. That's really important. I have another question for you. Okay. And um, we were talking about the younger generation. Or I, when you said the generation coming up, I just automatically thought younger generation, because there's something always exciting about the younger generation finding their identity, their sense of purpose, and bringing about real change. Because I believe that the development of society and the prosperity of society is dependent on the next generation. Um, passing on the baton, as it were. 
What advice, and I often think about this sometimes, and sometimes I'm able to articulate it, sometimes I'm not. What advice would you give to your younger self at whatever stage, whatever age? And what is one of the things that you've learned that has made you a better human being? Gosh, uh, so what advice I would give my younger self and what have I learned that's, that might have made me a better human being? That's a, that's a great and big question. Uh, I'm not altogether straightforward to answer, but, but actually thinking about it, one piece of advice that I was given when I started my career over 35 years ago, and I think it's relevant to people of all ages, and particularly for me, it would have been helpful to have heard the message perhaps a little earlier in my life. And it was advice given to me by a mentor who very fortunately for me, happened to show uh, an interest in my own development. And they said, remember, remember that in leadership um, and one's own personal development more widely, you don't and you won't get it right all the time. It's probably more an 80-20 game and put it in other words, you'll get it wrong 20% of the time. But they went on to say, but for that 20% and for those mistakes and errors, recognize that you get it wrong. Don't brush it under the carpet. Be honest with yourselves and others. Put your hand up, apologize, and say sorry openly and authentically, mm -hmm. and then learn from those mistakes. And he went on to say that if you do that, you will be a better, more respected, and more trusted person. And that is certainly advice that I will never forget and that has stuck with me for a long time. That's great advice, accountability. Indeed, indeed. Can I then, therefore, David, one final question for you, if I may. Yeah. Um, and we mentioned we are. We are living in challenging times. Uh, it's challenging for us all. And you, I know, have a, a young family. Um, what advice would you give uh, to your children for 2021 and beyond? Um, what advice would I give to my children? My uh, kids managed to get into um, a really good school. And I know if my parents were able to, <clears throat> they would have definitely enabled us as much as possible to go to the kind of school that my um, kids go to. And it's really cool that my kids are in, in an environment where they're surrounded by a lot of other kids that are very clever, very curious, intelligent, hardworking. Because I believe with the right kind of guidance, it will always inspire greatness. My advice to my children would be to always know that you are more than enough and to allow yourself to develop in every area of your life so that no matter what room you go into, you'll always have something to offer. But yeah, that would be my advice. Well, I think that's a very happy, upbeat and positive message on which to end, full of hope and optimism. Thank you, David. And David, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet with you today. Thank oh, so you. mutual, Charles. Oh, absolute pleasure. So mutual. Well, it's <laughs> been a del delight. And I, I really thank you for your openness, your honesty and those authentic that's messages right. today. And I, and I speak for, for countless people when I say congratulations on all that you've achieved and all that I'm sure that you will go on to achieve. You are uh, truly a wonderful role model. 
and we wish you all the very, very best with everything ahead. Thank you, David. So kind. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Charles. I really appreciate that. And just before we conclude this interview, I want to know if you're going to jump on the piano and play a little tune, because you can't have a piano like that there and not play a little tune for us. Even a happy birthday, a twinkle, twinkle, little star. I'll leave that to my my daughters to, 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 to carry out. And sadly, they're, they're, they're in the kitchen having lunch, I think, or something at this moment. No, that's all good. Another time. That is all good. Thank Absolutely. you. I really enjoyed it. And I know we, we use the word um, authentic came up a lot of the times in conversation. And I think I'm really going to hold on to that because I think authenticity is very, very important. And everyone's perception of authenticity can be different. But I think what you have within yourself, protect it and share it at the same time and invest in it. Indeed. What a final, what a perfect message on which to end. David, thank you and all the thank very best 2021. To you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thank you, Chrissy, and thank you, Anu. Well, that brings us to the end of proceedings today. We witnessed insightful, open, honest, and authentic discussions. And I hope, like me, you're feeling energized and inspired. Stay tuned for more great conversations and discussions and many more inspirational guests. That's all for me, other than to say thank you and bye for now. <laughs>